Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Welcome back to another edition of Politics Uncensored. I am Ali Milani, your host on Fubar Radio. We have a packed and exciting show. As people go to the polls across the UK for the local elections, we are going to be talking about all things politics and apathy in the UK and whether our democracy is fit for purpose. Joining us this week, we have Clive Betts, Labour MP for Sheffield South East and Chair of Leveling Up Housing and Communities. Matteo Bergamini, founder of CEO of Shoutout UK. And Alice Mason, a media spokesperson for Youth Action Group, talking about youth uh, votes at 16. But as I said, this week's Unwrapped is all about the local elections. Councillors across the country will be going to the polls to vote for their local councils. And as Labour attempts to make ground on the Conservatives, we have a tight race across the country. As Rishi Sunak today told his PPCs to brace for a tough night. Joining me in the studio this week, we have James Robertson. James is a director of Sortition Foundation, a not-for-profit social enterprise, whose mission is to promote the empowered use of citizens' assemblies to strengthen our democracy. James, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thanks, Ali. We've got the local elections this week, and I think rather than talking about Labour and the Conservatives, what I would like to do is a sort of pulse check, a health check on our democracy. And one of the things that Sortition are working hard on and yourself is working hard on is strengthen our democracy by removing the House of Lords and replacing it with some form of an elected chamber. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you guys are doing? Yeah, sure. So, like you say, I hear a lot of people talking about, well, how do we rebuild trust in politics, right? And we all know that trust in politicians is really low, no doubt. Um, after today's elections, part of looking at what happens, which I imagine is a, a lower turnout than, than normal, will be that because people are dissatisfied with the way that politics works in this country. And so at Sortition Foundation, we're here, we exist to upgrade our political system and transform our democracy. And as you say, one of the ideas that we have for how to do that is to replace the House of Lords, which uh, Starmer has pledged to abolish in his first term, with a House of Citizens. So that's a, that would be a permanent rolling citizens assembly, because we believe that for politics to work for ordinary people, it has to involve ordinary people. And while politicians remain accountable to their cronies and the lords and not ordinary people, it's going to continue to not serve you know, mm-hmm. common, common people's interests. So I think a lot of people, that, that conversation around the House of Lords has existed for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the general consensus is that it's so outdated and completely undemocratic. As most people will know, the House of Lords currently works on a sort of permanent basis. You get either appointed or there are hereditary appointments. And you kind of sit there for as long as you like for life, uh, earn a nice wage, and you get to vote on, on and send amendments to the House of Commons. We know that that's undemocratic. We've heard things like a Senate devolved. How is a House of Citizens different to a Senate? What What is the basis of this idea? Like, what? How? How do you think it strengthens our democracy? Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, right now. Um one of the frustrations, one of the many frustrations with the House of Lords is that uh, actually the largest professional group in the Lords is politicians. So when they talk about, oh, we put a lot of experts in there, actually the biggest professional group is people who've worked in politics. Yeah, because the idea is, oh, you should have doctors and scientists to, right. to engage on policy and laws that are relevant, but it's mostly politicians. Yeah, it's mo- yeah, that's the largest group. So that's not to say there isn't expertise in there, but mm-hmm. it is important to remember that. I mean, I would say there isn't expertise in there, but... <laughs> what, what we know for sure is that there is high trust in, uh, for example, juries making decisions. And mm-hmm. so citizens' assemblies are very, very similar to juries, but actually they're even better than juries because what uh, the sortition process guarantees is that uh, the group of people would be demographically representative of the bro- of the broader populace. So a House of Citizens would be 300 ordinary people selected through a democratic lottery, uh, but that would reflect the makeup of the country in terms of gender, in terms of age, in terms of race. So it would be the first chamber that's guaranteed to have 50% women. Right. Uh, you know, we're going to speak to some people about votes at 16. There would be young people in there. You know, the average age in the House of Lords at the moment is 71. Um, <laughs> some, some old folks yeah. right so definitely not representative of, of, of the group and how quickly would you change them around or is that 
So what we do, we would um, it would work a bit like parental leave. Um, so it's it's important to sort of balance the disruption to people's lives. Um, but if they're willing and able to serve, they could serve between twelve to eighteen months, and then we would um, circle that people would like a third would come off at a time and then be replaced mm. by similar folk with, with a similar demographic. You know, so it would have, as you were saying earlier, it would have doctors and scientists yeah. and tradespeople and you know shopkeepers. Because it's also one thing to say, well, these are experts that got to the top of a business, but those people aren't in touch with the lives of ordinary people on the ground. Do you know what I mean? And it's, that's it. it's some of that expertise that we're missing. Yeah, it seems to me that's the principle, right? You're trying to inject the lives of real people who experience day-to-day in Britain, unlike the sort of elite, into policymaking. So the laws that are being passed, the policy that's being passed, the accountability to government would have an element of real people injected into it. Exactly, exactly that. And that is not happening when uh, the lords with party affinity just vote along their party line. You know, it's not happening when we see the, the level of cronyism that we've seen around the PPE scandal. You know, it's understandable that people don't trust the lords to hold politicians to account on their behalf. But we, but we do trust each other all the time. We trust in juries. We trust in each other to look after our children to look after our elders when we're sick. We can trust each other to hold politicians to account in the same way. Yeah, and I think one of anyone who's heard me speak on this topic will have heard that I think there is a serious problem with the way that we are selecting candidates. All the parties are selecting mm-hmm. candidates mm-hmm. in that they're not representative of real people and real experiences yeah. in the House of Commons. And what this might do is balance that a little bit. I still think that needs to be fixed, but balance that a little bit by bringing in real people do you, exactly. so my other question is look can it's I a just, great can I just yeah. focus on that for a second yeah so it's important to remember nine there's 92 hereditary peers right because of the way that hereditary system works they're guaranteed pretty much to be white male uh, men for for the for the duration half of them went to eton you know it's as you say there's 26 bishops so it's the only place outside of iran that guarantees uh, a place for them and then there's also the fact that it's the second biggest chamber in uh, the whole world. So it's the second biggest chamber outside of Beijing, right, in the whole world. And these are people who get £330 a day for sit- for attending, attendance allowance. How so, many of them actually show up, though? So about half of them bother to show up. Uh, and then, um, so we're, we're in a cost of living crisis right now. We're debating about whether we should um, give children a free school meal. But there's people in the House of Lords some of whom are, you know, actual lords who live in castles, who are getting a free meal on the taxpayer every day. It's pretty outrageous. So do you think the bravery exists within our political leadership for this to become a reality? Like, uh, you know, this will never happen under the Tories, but under a Labour government, a Labour Lib Dem government, maybe some green involvement, we don't know how the next general election will pan out. Do you think the bravery exists, the courage exists to make such a radical change? Because the talk about different changing the House of Lords has existed for a long time, and this is a really interesting idea, but it requires some courage from politicians. It does require some courage from politicians, but it it's um, you know it's also the definition of stupidity to try the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, right? We've been try there there has been attempts to reform the Lords and make it an elected chamber over and over and over and over again. Consistently, the challenge to that is that they don't is that the House of Commons does not want the second chamber to threat it to threaten its primacy, right? Which I can understand. The second chamber should be complementary to the first chamber, and so um, they can't get it through. And there's, so there's opposition from the Commons because they don't want an elected chamber. And so this, with it not being elected, is uh, is a significant change that gives Britain the opportunity to be to be a world leader in democratic innovation. That hasn't been tried before, so why not give it a shot? Yeah, so look, my last question is, look, we're going to speak a little bit about some some ideas about how to increase engagement in our politics, things like voters at 16, things like voter ID and whether that's decreasing it. One of the things that I found is often in the Westminster bubble, in the House of Commons bubble, in, in the political bubble in the UK, some ideas that are perfectly valid, maybe a little bit radical, but the right things to do, 
are considered outside of the frame or the paradigm of what is and isn't acceptable politics in the UK. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we go out, I mean, we do Vox Pops, Pops on this show all the time where we go out and talk to people, they don't think it's so silly. So Votes at 16 has a lot more support in the general public than it does in the House of Commons. For example, the big culture war around um, trans rights, for example, which the Tories have been running on, when you, when you look at the polls of women across the UK, there's large support for... Uh, for trans rights that sort of culture war isn't actually existent in our communities do you think that through this idea we might be able to shift what isn't isn't acceptable politics and have a wider array of ideas enter our politics yeah definitely i mean i think this is a really good example of exactly what you're talking about when we polled we did a yougov poll we found 45 percent of people would support the idea of replacing the House of Lords with the House of Citizens. It's not a radical idea. We already make decisions through public deliberation. That is the basis of our judicial system, is that we use juries of ordinary people who listen to evidence, can like weigh up the pros and cons, and then make an informed decision. So it's not, it's not a radical idea. It's a very mainstream idea. I think it will change the... It could or has the potential to change the culture of politics because I think that if politicians aren't being watched by their cronies and they are being watched by ordinary people, then they will behave differently. Yeah, and so that brings us to uh, our first guest that will be joining us uh, online, Count Binface, who many of you will have will have heard of. Um, I actually ran against Count Binface once uh, in an election. He's going to be joining us after this. Fubar Radio presents. Because I don't see a problem watching porn if you're in a relationship. No, I don't either. No. I don't see. No. No, I don't see that as a, a massive deal. But if there is actually um, someone on the other end of that, is it then a bit dodgy? Well, let's think. So, say you're in bed with your beautiful partner, and she gets out of bed at two a.m., leaves you in bed. You're laying there, all cosy and happy. She goes into the bathroom, and you hear her talking to another man and being sexually aroused over it. And I imagine masturbation. So, if you'd walked in on her masturbating live with another guy, how would that make you feel? Yeah, I'd be fucked off. Actually, I think. Every Friday, Fubar Radio. So joining us in a minute will be Count Binface, a serial political candidate, an independent space warrior of Sigma 11. He was formerly Lord Buckethead, but evolved into Count Binface, has stood against Theresa, Mo- Theresa May, Boris Johnson, and defeated Piers Corbyn and UKIP in the 2021 London mayoral elections. He came ninth out of 20 candidates. Count Binface will be joining us in a minute. James, I just wanted to quickly ask you. I once, as people know, went up against the Prime Minister, and I remember being stood on stage, and to my right was Count Binface, Lord Buckethead, Elmo, and I just thought, what the fuck am I doing, right? Do you think these sort of gimmicky novelty candidates are a reflection on our politics, or is it just a bit of fun and you know part of the british tradition of elections does it have any impact is it is it a symptom a disease or is it not at all relevant i guess ultimately i assume the strategy was to ridicule the system and to highlight to people the ludicrousness of it whereas i can understand that perhaps uh a while ago things are getting so bad for people now i don't think that they need to be reminded of the fact that the poli- of that politics in this country doesn't work for them, and so I wonder what the sort of function or strategy of uh, of um, Count Binface is now. Like, what's he trying to achieve? Maybe we'll find out. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I thought. I think when you're not a candidate, you think it's quite funny. Um, people, you know, think they're kind of making a point of ridiculing the system but i really do think that that experience of being stood on stage and thinking where else in the world is the leader of of the country going to get elected and in his speech directly behind him is elmo and two guys with with buckets on their heads and um but i guess it 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 serves it it serves as a way of um highlighting I guess ridiculing the system? We'll find out. Well, Count Binface, 
uh, will be joining us, an independent space warrior of, of Sigma 11. Uh, he's just having some technical difficulties, so he's going to join us after this. Fubar Radio presents Harriet Rose. Amber Marks here. As I was saying, the visuals on Love Be Right, it was kind of like Lady in the Water, like, you know, yeah, that old yeah. painting. That was pretty crazy being in that pink plastic pool with like milk and like pink food dye and jello, I think. So to us, it looks really sexy, and then you're just sat in there like, what? It is was very this? cold. <laughs> very cold and very gloopy. Yeah. Did you pee in the pool? No, I did not. I didn't. Promise me. I swear I didn't because there was the guy who was doing, he was holding the camera. I felt really bad. He was in the pool with me, so I didn't want to pee in the pool. Oh, so that's the only reason you didn't pee in the pool no, because exactly. there was another guy there. I didn't want to do that. Too. He's suddenly like, oh, did someone put some warm water in yeah. here? <laughs> kind of a yellowy hue. Every Thursday, Harriet Rose from 4 p.m. Fubar Radio. So joining us now, we have Count Binface, an independent space warrior, formerly Lord Buckethead, but evolved into Count Binface, and he stood against Boris Johnson, Theresa May, and others. Um, Count Binface, I don't really know how I address you. Is it your lordship? Is it your highness? How, how does this work? I quite like your highness. Uh, hello, Ali. And, and let's go with your excellency or count. Yeah. Uh, just make sure that you do add in the O, because otherwise the word count can uh, get a, you know, a little bit Jeremy Huntified. <laughs> and we don't want that. I won't forget the, the O. Afternoon. So, but it's lovely to be with you. It's it's a pleasure to have you. Um, so listen, myself, I've got James Robertson here with the studio. In the studio, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, I once stood in an election where I had Elmo and yourself and Lord Buckethead and others on 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 stage as the prime minister was elected. Can you tell you us a little bit about the purpose behind running? Because it's not winning, is it? What are you trying to highlight? Is it the ridiculousness of our politics? Well, you know, I mean, firstly, yes, it was. I, I d- deeply enjoyed uh, running uh, you know, with and against you in that election. I remember it well. I remember Elmo. I remember the bucket fake. I remember Boris the blonde bombshell Johnson. And I remember you running uh, uh, for, for Mr. Corbyn. And, of course, the latter pair, you and Mr. Johnson, the novelty candidates at the bunch. And I and I do appreciate that people like you guys should have a chance to stand because that, in essence, is British democracy, is it not? And listen to us talking on an election day. It's marvellous when the humans get to go and cast their little ballot, no matter what councillor, what idea that they're standing for it doesn't matter the key thing is everyone has a chance to express themselves and i think it deserves celebrating and defending more than ever wouldn't you say in the 21st century and that's why any life form like myself or a corbynista or a johnsonista whatever they are uh, should have the right to stand don't you think uh, I, I do and um so listen i i, I heard a bit of a bit of resentment in your voice when you when you referenced Lord Buckethead. Tell us a little bit about the history between yourself and Lord Buckethead. Well, I must correct you there, because uh, you suggest that I I have a little bit of resentment towards the bucket fake, and that's not it, that's not true at all. I have a ton of resentment towards the bucket fake, and I'm happy to elucidate you on why. Basically, what happened was this: so I I came down to earth. First time, 2017, lovely year, took on Theresa May. Remember her? No, thought not. Never mind. She used to be Prime Minister. And I took her on in Maidenhead. It was a lot of fun. But I thought, I better not turn up as myself because I might freak you all out. So I thought I needed a disguise. And I discovered that there was this lordship that had lain dormant for 25 Earth years. The lordship of Buckethead. Some dude... In 1987, you might not know this, took on Margaret Thatcher. Remember her? No, thought not. She used to be Prime Minister. Anyway, he took on her in Finchley. And then some this same guy took on John Major in Huntington in 92. And all he was doing, he was a human, trying to flog copies of some absolutely god-awful film from the 1980s. You know, good luck to him. But then the title had laid vacant, and I thought, aha! This is the perfect camouflage for an old bin face. So uh, I moseyed down, had a lot of fun, ended up being flown over to be on John Oliver's show in the United States. There's a, a, a lot of la la la. <laughs> what happened was some American film producer, human, wanted to get in on the act. And he'd made this terrible film in the 80s. So he, in conjunction with some other humans, 
basically sort of pushed me off the old bucket platform, and so I had to respawn as my true self. And then <laughs> they had the nerve to stand against me and you in Oxbridge and South Rising. I mean, I, I would, I would remind you, your it? your highness, that Lord Buckethead didn't endorse me in that election. Um, so uh, I, I do hold some warmth to Lord Buckethead. Listen, I, I just wanted to quickly ask you one last question. Uh, let's say you had won that election and you became prime prime minister, Lord. No, wait, Count Binface. Uh, you know, what are some of the big things you'd like to change? What are some of the big things you believe in that our politics needs? Well, now we get on to it. Enough of the biog. Let's get on to the politics, right? Well, why don't we talk about the old royal family, eh? With the uh, coronation coming up. I've got a few policies on them. Uh, because, you know, I, I don't wish to uh, abolish them like some people do. No, 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 no. I merely wish to solidify their ceremonial role so that they become the living, breathing version of Madame Tussauds that deep down the public wants. And uh, incidentally... Each year, the royal family costs the British taxpayer 69.4 million quid, which is slightly less than a family day to ticket to Madame Tussauds. Uh, maybe one day uh, we'll see uh, your likeness uh, in Madame Tussauds. Thank you so much, uh, Count Binface, uh, for joining us. That was Count Binface, a serial political candidate. Uh, he's an independent space warrior of Sigma 11, whatever that is. He was formerly Lord Buckethead. <laughs> Not nine, sorry. I've got it all wrong here. Lord, uh, He was formerly Lord Buckethead, but evolved into Count Binface, stood against Theresa May, Boris Johnson, and myself in the election. James, do you have any response to what we've just been through? I'm sort of reminded of, uh, have you read that book by Jose Saramaggio, Seeing, Where No One Votes? <laughs> no, but uh, I can see that becoming a reality. Yeah, I kind Binface. of wonder if that's what his endgame is, you know, to reveal the the kind of craziness of it to such an extent that actually uh, no one engages yeah, you know what? to such an extent that no one engages and that then precipitates some sort of like revolutionary if I was to try and dig into maybe some of the ideas he presented us there I might be manufacturing them in my own mind mm -hmm. but it sounded more like a celebration of everyone should be able to stand in this our democracy and in our democ in, a, in a wonderful democracy even silly people like me can stand so it, it didn't come across to me, maybe I'm wrong, and I was desperately looking for meaning, that he was ridiculing the system and saying the system is all fucked up. And, you know, it sounded like he was saying, he's celebrating the system. isn't it great that even people like me can stand? Yeah. So in a way, he's actually quite a small C conservative candidate because he's showing quite how free our system is. Yeah. <laughs> now is the penetrating question, James. Would Count Binface be allowed to serve in a citizens' assembly or in a house of citizens in our reformed new system that we've developed here live yeah, on yeah. FUBAR Radio? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. his ideas like his could be injected into our politics and we might have more intergalactic space people. Well, yeah, although ultimately it wouldn't be... The House of Lords obviously is not a... Uh, you know, it doesn't develop legislation. Right. Yeah. So um, it would more be that Count Pimface would scrutinise scrutinise our politicians. our politicians. Some would say he's already done that. Um, joining us next, we get a slightly more serious. Um, we've got the Labour MP for Sheffield South East and Chair of Leveling Up Housing and Communities. Clive Betts is joining us after this break. Fubar Radio presents Callum McSwiggan. It's the amazing Abigailia Shaman. I lost my virginity on prom night in a cornfield in Ohio. Wow. And that is the most American thing I've ever done. <laughs> that is the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah. What, what a way to lose yeah. it. In a cornfield. Yeah, and we had a blanket. I remember texting a friend afterwards and I was like, it didn't taste like I thought it was going to. That, <laughs> that, that was my confusion. <laughs> Harriet Rose. I'm joined by the wonderful Ray Black. I woke up to my mum listening to my music <laughs> and singing along to it. And there's one that's like, it's very explicit. And she was singing along and vibing to it. And oh, I was like, yeah. My sister in the next room, like, oh my God, I can't believe she's listening to this song. Like, this song is about sex. She waltzes into the room and she's like, there's nothing you're doing that I haven't done before. I was <laughs> like, oh my God. So we're all learning new things. There's <laughs> oh nothing God. you're singing about I haven't done before. So it's fine. Oh my God. <laughs> Joey Page. I'm joined by Marika Hackman, whose splendid new 
album, Any Human Friend, is out now. You are just explicitly honest and quite graphic yeah. in some places sexually and do you think it might also be quite difficult when it comes to dating and stuff because someone can like basically <laughs> listen through all this explicit stuff yeah you know i hadn't thought about that there you go <laughs> great yeah i mean sorry it might, to bring it that to your door real turn off yeah yeah access all areas down as well strictly Hello, thank Hi you so guys. much for coming yeah. in. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Your dating Jerwin. Yes. He was your dance partner last year, right? Yes, he so, was. I always wanted to ask. Uh-oh. Who put on who first? <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those things, like, obviously during the show, we were honestly so, so busy with, yeah. with learning a routine every week. And it wasn't until after the series that we were like, oh, my gosh, we, we really did enjoy spending all this time together. So and, um, and, yeah, we ended up, yeah. you know, being together. It is very, and it's cute that it's managed to succeed outside of the show. You're listening to Food Bar Radio. Foobar Radio. Welcome back. It's Ali Milani on Politics Uncensored. It's local election day, and today we're talking about all things political systems, voter apathy, and how we can get greater democratic engagement into our politics. Around 8,000 councillor seats and four local mayoral posts are up for grabs today. It is also the Conservative Party's biggest indicator on how things go (coughs) when the country heads to the polls next year for a general election. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has already warned his party that they are in for a hard night. And an opinion survey carried out between April 26th and 28th suggested that Labour could secure 44% of the vote share compared to the Tories' 26. However... Voter apathy is rife in the UK, and the questions remain whether people will actually choose to vote, particularly in a local election where most people don't. General elections, I think, and referendums generally have a higher turnout than local elections. Voter turnout in Wakefield by-election, for example, didn't even hit 50%, and the by-election in Tiverton and Honiton had a turnout of 52.3%. So our question today is, do people actually care about politics, and how are some of the systems uh, in place aiding that reinforcing that or what can we put in place to to raise engagement of general people in our politics how apathetic james do you think people are heading into this local election i think people aren't apathetic are they people can't be apathetic it's like whether it's hard out there and people are very frustrated with our politics what they perhaps struggle to see is the relationship between voting for someone and them delivering things for them and delivering on the promises that they have um, made. So it's more to do with trust and less to do with sort of apathy, I think. I think that is nail on head. I think a lot of times, you know, we think... When we talk about political apathy, we almost talk about politics that doesn't really affect people, Yeah. right? When we talk about the cost of living crisis, for real people, that's whether they can afford to pay the energy bills, that's whether they yeah, can right. afford to buy the kids' shoes to go to school. Exactly. It's whether they can put food on the table and heat the house. Yeah. Of course they're not apathetic <laughs> about that. Yeah. When exactly. we talk about things like the migrant crisis, the mo- some of the most vulnerable people in this country, I, my family were asylum seekers, refugees. Yeah. The policy realities on the ground, they're not apathetic towards that. If they're not voting, it's a f- surely a reflection on the politicians, whether they've done enough, a good enough job of garnering trust and belief to be able to then encourage people to go out and vote. Exactly. Uh, when we talk about apathy, it, it sometimes just places the blame on the voter, no? Yeah, definitely. It's for, yeah, 100%. And so the question is, how do, we, how do we increase engagement on that? We've already spoken a little bit about... Uh, the House of Lords and and some of the ideas that your organization, Sortition, have about um, replacing that with a House of Citizens. What we're going to talk about a little bit later is also about votes at 16. Can you give us a little bit about your sense on votes at 16, where you sit? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, people should be able to vote at 16. They already do across the border in Scotland, and they see high engagement. You know, we should be uh, doing political education from a young age and we should be strengthening the civic muscle from a from a young age and you know and part of that is being given the democratic rights to to vote i think i think it's a political inevitability that we will see that uh within the next sort of 10 years yeah it's i've never really understood i mean i understand 
politically mm-hmm. why the conservatives <laughs> don't want this to happen. Yeah. I struggle with Labour's opposition to it because it's only going to benefit them in terms of votes, surely. It does seem that way, doesn't it? That essentially, if you're under 40, you're pretty likely to vote Labour. Mm. I suspect... If you vote. Well, if you vote, yeah. I suspect that it won't just benefit Labour and the sort of centre-left to the left parties. It'll also drive voter engagement up 18 and above because if you have an earlier engagement first of all I think if you give votes at 16 you'll see a huge spike at least in the first couple of elections because the novelty of being allowed to vote first time will go up and then once you go vote once it's kind of it kind of enters your uh, psyche as an important thing to do and you're more likely to go to, to to go again so I can't see why anyone at least on the left of politics or even the center left wouldn't see this as a good idea but we're talking about trust in politics and whether apathy is a reflection on the voter or the politicians our wonderful producers went out onto the streets of north london to find out what people really think uh and so clive uh, betts is going to be joining us in a bit uh labor mp uh for sheffield east but before we go to him let's hear from real people about what they think and we asked them do you trust our politicians not entirely um but i think it's it's a difficult job where you have to keep a lot of people happy all the time, so you have to promise things that you can't necessarily keep. But if the answer is yes or no, I would say absolutely not. I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. Uh, they say one thing and do another. How can you trust them? Because ultimately you know, as one of the normal people, they don't have your best interests at heart. They've got their own agenda. The answer is yes and no. I think pre-2016 and the Brexit vote, I think there was strong elements of trust in the government, I think, since the Brexit vote and what's happened since then, there probably is an element of mistrust. I don't have a lot of trust in our current politicians, but I do have faith that if we vote in a new government, that um, I would feel like I had, I'd have a lot more trust for the politicians. Unfortunately, being a politician attracts the wrong type of person who is only in for their own good. No. Is there any of them to trust at the moment? Well, that's quite a strong and powerful <laughs> end. No, is there any of them to trust at the moment? You know, James, we do these um, we do these vox pops quite a lot. We've done them on uh, trust in the police. We've done them on how people are going to vote. Um, we've done them on uh, issues of around gender. And one of the things I have noticed in the sort of six weeks we've been doing this show is the real divide in views seems to be separated according to age. Younger people seem to have a more liberal, lack of a better word, progressive view on things. So less trust in the police, less trust in politicians. Uh, And older people have, um, again, not to homogenize everybody, but there seems to be a key divide in viewpoints and worldview um, based on age. Is that something that you think exists, is new, has always existed? Um, well, they say you get you you're sort of born a socialist and you become conservative. I think what's gonna I think what's gonna buck the trend is that actually I don't think it is to do with age. I think it's to do with um, your economic situation. And so, as uh, sort of the old Gen Xers who are like in their late thirties, early forties, those people theoretically should start to become more conservative. I think that's. I, I'm interested to see if that actually happens this time because that is a generation of people who still can't buy a house, who still, you know, may have student debt. You know, so there's a set of economic circumstances which are consistent to those people that aren't actually going to change. And you're only really conservative if you have something to conserve. Yeah. And they don't really have much Well, they don't have that economic security that the previous generation exactly. might have had as they ended their 30s and 40s. Exactly, yeah. So you're saying we might not see that rightward trajectory exactly. in the 30 and 40 year olds. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I I f- feel quite strongly about is the lack of representation, not just in individuals, but in ideas of young people in the House of Commons and in mm-hmm. our politics in general. You said the House of Lords average age was, what, 72? 71, yeah. 71. The average age in the UK is 40. <clears throat> yeah, so, so... nearly twice what it is. I would... You know, I think the injection of young ideas into our politics will help immensely in being able to engage young people mm-hmm. because 
you know whether you engage in a system is is quite often whether the ideas you believe in are reflected people look like you sound like you yeah. um not just in terms of accent and things like that but also sound like you in terms of the things you care about and the things you feel passionately about this house of citizens would do that no yeah exactly it would literally mirror the demographic makeup of um of the country and um at the end of the day you know to go back to the vox pops thing right we're gonna have to make a decision about who do you trust to hold politicians to account like retort like other politicians or people like you and me because they're the two options basically we're either gonna have an elected second chamber or it'll stay as it is <laughs> which doesn't seem to be an option for anyone or we could have a citizens assembly yeah, yeah. and the, and the key thing that i find most attractive about this idea is you know a lot of times we criticize these politicians these 71 year olds on average lords or i don't know i imagine the house of commons is quite similar maybe late 60s average age for not representing our views not talking about the things we care about not prioritizing the things we care about the reality is it's not just that they're unwilling they're also unable they don't have our lived experience yeah they don't know what life is like for most of us and so it's they're almost incapable of being able to represent us or prioritizing the things that we feel most passionately about because they they've not lived it so when they talk about the house of living the cost of living crisis they talk about it in in almost abstract terms, abstract terms. Yeah. yeah so when you hear rishi sunak he's always reading statistics and looking at his, because he's not lived the cost of living experience he's never had to worry about whether he can put food on the table yeah and so a house of citizens would sh surely inject lived experience into our process accountability policy ideas things like that yeah exactly i mean i think you know it's easy to bash politicians but i don't like politicians will always play politics and politics for a lot of people is a dirty word i don't actually think that politicians have any choice other than to play politics I, that they are the rules of the game i think blaming politicians without changing the system around them is a bit like blaming the bankers after the financial crisis you know the it isn't you can't just replace the bankers and with non-selfish bankers or non-ruthless bankers and then expect the financial system not to be selfish or ruthless any yeah. more than you can replace politicians with other politicians and expect them not to play politics. So yeah, for well, objections you can't, to politics, then you can't throw twenty-two people out on Old Trafford on a Saturday and say, "Why are they kicking the ball?" You know right? what I mean? You've got to change yeah, the rules. Yeah, exactly. So um, we've not been able to connect uh, with the Labour MP. So we're going to move on to Matteo uh, Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shout UK. Matteo, uh, uh, Shout UK is a multi-award-winning social enterprise that provides impartial political and media literacy training and campaigns focused on democratic engagement and combating disinformation online. Tailored to local circumstances and culture, in 2022, Matteo orchestrated London, Vo London Voter Registration Week with the Great London Authority, a campaign that brought together 33 local authorities and 100-plus civil society organizations. In its first year, it reached 2.6 million people and managed to boost youth voter registration by 23% across the capital. Mateus, th thank you so much for joining us. Myself and James in the studio have been talking a little bit about um, apathy among young, young voters as people go to the polls today. Can you talk to us a little bit about the work that you guys are doing and how we can tackle voter apathy amongst young people, but maybe even broader than that? Sure, no, definitely. First of all, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, I would say, first of all, um, we need to understand what we mean by, by voter apathy amongst young people, because First of all, I think there's this, this great myth that young people don't care about politics. Um, they do, and we can see this from the myriad of different protests and campaigns that have gone on from, from things like climate change to mental health to, um, uh, to, to, to anything else. So there is um, this idea that young people don't care about politics, I think, is, is, is a really kind of dangerous myth and something that has been disproven time and time again. Um, now, when we come to voter apathy, though, um, the difference here, I think, is are the things that they are interested in, i.e. the issues that they're interested in, do they link up with um, mainstream politics? And this is where I think the breakdown is, where we've got um, young people who overwhelmingly care about a variety of issues, be it climate change, be it mental health, being a variety of different issues, but they don't see the link often between that 
and the mainstream political process, like uh, a general election, for example, like engaging with your local councillor if it's a local issue or anything else. And that's, I think, where the where the issue lies is that there is a, a lot of political illiteracy in the UK and, and across the democratic world, mainly because we've never been taught it in schools. You know, politics doesn't exist as a GCSE. It isn't taught in primary schools. It isn't taught in secondary schools, bar the few schools that do citizenship. And those are far and few between. Um, so most of our work focuses around helping young people and helping people in general understand the political process and then how to critically analyze the information they receive, be it online, radio or wherever else, uh, which we call media yeah. literacy. Yeah, I think I, one of the main ways of dealing with apathy is ensuring that it's in our educational system. I think that's really interesting. You've, you've almost, uh, similar to James Robertson, who we've got in the studio, kind of redefined apathy and said that, uh, and I agree with you, that that. that we're mis when we talk about apathy, what we're talking about is not a generation that doesn't care about politics, but a generation that struggles to trust our politicians and political system to reflect what they believe. And um, I, I recently joined TikTok. I mean, I'm a recent adopter. And when I was trying to understand it, I'm, listen, I'm not that old, but I sometimes behave older than I am. Uh, and um, when I was trying to understand it, I went through a few friends who have TikToks and they showed it to me and went through their feed. And it was remarkable. I would say about 50% of the content across the board from young people is political in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not like people aren't talking about issues and politics. It's that they're struggling to connect with the system. And so I wanted to ask you uh, specifically around this idea of um, education and literacy. I've always found it ludicrous that we shut down schools to have people vote but then send the kids home and don't do any sort of education as to why their school's been shut down, how the process works. Surely polling day is an enormous opportunity to teach people, these students in the schools, what is happening in their school, the process, the democracy, and to get them engaged early on. It, it definitely is an enormous opportunity, but I would argue that it's a little too late at that point. In the sense that I think if we leave it, and, and we see this all the time, you know, we're, we're seeing it with the, with the May local elections, and we'll see it when, when when a general election rolls around that suddenly everyone's talking about voting, and suddenly we're doing a ton of activities to register all the vote, which is all well and good, but you're, you're plugging a leaky ship in the sense that political engagement is not just a one-time thing whenever there's an election. It's something that needs to be ingrained in us. Um, because it's, it's a consistent conversation between you and your elected representative, the person that you're paying the salary of to an extent in, in terms of taxes if you're if you if you're working um but but it's a constant conversation um and then of course it comes to a head during an election when you decide if that person needs to carry on with their job or not but it's a consistent conversation and we just don't have that narrative at the moment so yes 100 percent agree it should be you know uh, we're kind of missing a trick there but in general like for example when we do london voter registration week it's not about what what you vote on or how you do it or, or any of that kind of stuff it's, it's heavily apolitical but it's about creating a yearly time when you look at your democratic health so looking at do you need to re-register to vote do you need to look at who your who your representatives are you know it's a time when you can kind of refresh your knowledge and refresh um your various different different standings in in, in our democracy and it's about building that kind of cultural habit of engaging with the system. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't engage critically, of course. It's not about building blind trust. Far from it. It's about building that critical engagement to be like, are they doing what you want? If they are, then great. Celebrate it. If they're not, how do you change? Yeah. So, Matteo, um, I'm going to come back to you in a second. But one of the things we've been talking about today in terms of real actions that we can take has been one the House of Lords and and whether we can replace that with the House of Citizens, but also votes at sixteen. And so joining us now we have Alice Mason, a media spokesperson for the Votes at Sixteen Youth Action Group. The Votes at Sixteen Youth Action Group is a dynamic group of thirty young people who lead and champion the Votes at Sixteen campaign across the UK. Their three main objectives include leading and informing important information about the campaign, engaging with young people and decision makers, and building support and encouraging the members of the public to get involved. Um, this has been a huge issue, I think, in our politics in more recent years. Um, there has been a little bit of back and forth uh, by the major parties as to whether um, they're going to adopt Votes at 16. Uh, Alice, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you guys are doing and how Votes at 16 would surely increase engagement from young people in our politics? Yeah, sure. So we're a, uh, we're a group of 20 campaigners from across the UK. 
Um, and I think for us, we're really passionate about making sure that everyone has access to democracy, but also that people feel empowered to like use and make the best of that access, uh, which is kind of what Votes at 16 is all about. So it's really about how you can get the most out of our democracy. And it becomes clear that with Votes at 16, we're able to kind of increase engagement, which is then sustained because the, long the younger you start voting, the more likely you are to continue this into later age. But also most excitingly, it increases political literacy because you're able to kind of capture this group of voters who are still in education and can make sure that they have access to tools to ensure that they don't fall victim to like misinformation and they know what's going on with the different parties and like how elections work. And that creates like a new generation of voters who are empowered and confident and more likely to kind of get involved and engage with politics properly throughout their later life. I'm curious to ask um, both of you, actually, both of you are trying to engage young people in, in politics. I've just moved from one constituency where there was a 20,000 majority for Labour to another constituency that has a 20,000 majority for the Tory party. With the voting system, the way it's um, set up at the moment, do you ever find that when you, when you educate young people about how it works, they actually feel less inclined to vote because they feel like their vote doesn't matter in such a safe seat? And does it require some sort of system change to the to the voting system um, to, to get higher engagement, do you think? Matteo, do you want to take that first? Sure, no, definitely. Um, I mean, in, in, in we, we've, we've been in about just over a thousand schools now, and I can say, safely say that in general, um, young people, when we teach them about the political system, um, and that obviously includes first past the post, in general, um they feel they feel empowered about you know okay this is how it works this is how i can affect change um i i definitely i mean there's there's been a ton of research done around the the issues around first past the post and the fact that you know um voting can be split um between certain candidates that have similar policies to to and, and therefore potentially have someone get get elected that has a more uh you know a slightly different policy but because their, their vote hasn't been split so there's definitely been been research behind that um but in general um i, I don't i haven't seen that that effect how young people engage i mean there's, there's definitely a conversation around around the voting system to be had um but i think we need to understand where we are now before we can even begin to comprehend you know conversations about where we want to get to alice i wonder if you can you know in kind of answering that talk us also about uh, the manifesto that you guys have, uh, the Votes at 16 Youth Action Group, and any, what sort of big changes you'd like to see? Yeah, of course. So, um, I mean, I completely agree with what Matteo said, like, first past the post is an issue across all age groups. But then where it becomes like a specific barrier to young people, and young people feel even less inclined to like get out there and vote, is that we just don't see our interests represented. So one of the things on the manifesto that we'd like to see is kind of um, a minister for, for young people and youth issues. So we can see those directly and like clearly represented in politics so that people think despite the barriers of first past the post where sometimes it feels like you're not making a lot of change, you're still motivated to vote because your interests are represented and there is kind of a stake in politics for you. Alice, if you had the next Prime Minister of the UK listening, sat next to me here, I don't think it'll be James, but Definitely anything is me, possible in, in our politics, and you had 30 seconds to tell him exactly why Votes at 16 is so important, how would you go about doing that? Well, I think I'd tell him that it, it is about democracy. Like, it's about democracy for everybody, not just involving 16 and 17 year olds. It's about making sure that people feel empowered and valued in our democratic system so that then they're able to get involved and continue these habits of involvement later on into life. Yeah, and I, I you know, J James, I wonder what you think about this. I, The thing that's always baffled me about voters at 16 is 16 year olds can leave college, school, sixth form go into work, pay income tax, but have no say about who and how that income tax is spent. That's a huge issue, no? Yeah, right. That's the classic no taxation without representation line. Yeah, and it's it just makes no sense to me. Matteo, equally, you've got the next prime minister uh, <laughs> sat here listening to you. Some of your demands, one, two things that you would say that you could guarantee would increase engagement 
um, in our politics, particularly from young people? What do you want him to do? James, listen closely. I'm, I'm all ears. I, I, I would say that, um, one, we need to make political and media literacy um, a core part of the curriculum, not just in secondary schools, but starting from primary schools, because if we want to call ourselves a true democracy, then we realistically need to make people understand how it actually functions and works and how they can affect change as well as how to critically analyze the information they they receive online, on radio, or wherever they get their information from. Um, this is helpful not just for our democracy, but also for public health. I mean, I think it came to a, to a shock um, for everyone in government when they struggled to vaccinate a portion of their own population during the pandemic just because of this mm. information. Matteo, if um, I can interrupt you there quickly. What some of the critics will say, some of the naysayers, some of those hesitants around this, is that this will be political indoctrination, right? This will be left-wingers who are going to be telling kids how to think. How do we reassure them, I guess? I don't really care about them, but let's say we want to reassure them because we want a broad coalition of people to back this, um, that this will be an impartial sort of political education. Sure. Um, so two things, and we actually did a bit of research on this with, with the University of Sheffield, but but two things. One is that um, this isn't about um, any kind of highbrow politics or understanding political theory. This is what we call political literacy. It's kind of being literate in a language. You know, you're not going to write extensive prose in that language, but you can get around, go to the bar for a meat food. You're not going to starve, say, in that country because you know the basics. Um, and the basics of the, of the law. So it's understanding first past the post. It's understanding what your local representatives at different levels do. That's not political. That is just explaining how our system is at the moment. If you then agree with it or you want to change it, that is entirely up to you. Um, so political literacy, in a sense, is nonpartisan by its very nature. Um, secondly, when we did the research, we found that actually this idea that people are afraid of uh, teacher bias is a myth. Um, we ended up serving, I think it was just over 2,000 odd parents uh, across England, and we found that the majority don't have this concern, and the ones that do often self-subscribe as being quite aggressively left-wing, and therefore they, they think that there's a right-wing bias, and then obviously vice versa for the other side. Um, so it's actually a myth that there is this concern. Right, and uh, Alice, quickly, last question. Um, you guys are working incredibly hard at the Votes at 16 Youth Action Group. If there are young people listening or anyone who wants to get involved and help the campaign for Votes at 16, how would they do that? Um, so if they go to our website, they can see places where um, they can get in touch with us. But also just kind of taking that first step and involving themselves in politics and recognising that like, kind of no matter the hostilities that you face, um, from older politicians or older people around you. Politics is a space for everyone. It's something that affects everyone and everybody should get involved with it. Brilliant. Could it, couldn't have said it better myself. That was Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shout Out UK, and Alice Mason, media spokesperson for the Votes at 16 Youth Action Group. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, both of you. Uh, James and I will be back with you after this short break. FUBAR Radio presents... All areas. We've got the lovely Joel joining us now from MIC. Joel, you are live on Zoom. How are you, babe? Hello. So have you officially uh, emigrated now to Chelsea? I guess so, but not uh, hopefully not for too long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of like an East London girl. Like I'm more I like culture. And I feel like um Chelsea is deprived of culture and it's de deprived of arts and it's deprived of all these things that I love. <laughs> so you are Shoreditch rather than Kensington? Oh, a million percent. Every Wednesday from 6 p.m. FUBAR Radio. Back now, Ali Milani and James Robertson. I am your host for Politics Uncensored, and James Robertson from the Sortition Foundation is here with us. We've spoken about the House of Lords. We've spoken about votes at 16. One thing we were going to speak to the Labour MP about, but he he didn't show, um, was voter ID. Uh, this is the first time for many people they'll be entering a voting booth and being told to prove who they are and show ID. Um, I have been voting since I was 18. I have stood in multiple public elections. I have never heard of voter fraud being any kind of a serious issue across the UK. I've never really heard um, any sort of serious problems with people needing ID or people voting for people, voting on behalf of people and not being them. This whole concept of voter fraud yeah this is a solution without a problem is it not i think one of the 
things about this situation is is that if you say to people you should prove who you are before you vote that seems quite reasonable right the premise of it is quite reasonable but as you say we don't one of the things we don't know is how much of an effect that this is going to have on people who vote and particularly folks who you know already have enough in their lives today uh, and are trying to get to the voter booth and the reason for that is that as i understand it they will only be recording the people who come to actually vote and then are turned away because they don't have id but the problem with that is at the polling stations there will be lots of people before they get to the ballot box that ask them if they've got id and will turn them away so one of my concerns about this is that we don't actually know what the impact of uh this new bit um initiative is and the figures won't give us a clue because of the way that they've uh, designed how they record people who don't, who aren't able to vote. It seems that the Tories have really followed the Republican, the American Republican model, because they introduced this votes, um, this I- identification of voting ballots, and it saw a serious decline in votes from people, particularly working class backgrounds, yeah. young people. Yeah. Um, in America, it's a particular issue because many people don't have passports. Um, I think that might be a similar situation here, but I think. The Tories really exposed themselves and what their real political ambition is in some of the details of the guidance of this new law. Mm-hmm. Over 65s can use their Oyster cards as identification to vote, yeah. Yeah. but young people can't. That's what they're trying to do. No, they're disenfranchising one group of voters who don't vote for them in favor of another group who do. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that it seems... Uh, conceivable that this will significantly impact some folks more than other folks so um i read this morning that a tory mp forgot her id and um so but she thoughts with her (laughs) yeah yeah so she but she could go she could pop back home and get it right if i'm on my way to work if i'm working a long shift i have to get to work you're just gonna say fuck it i'm not gonna go i don't have time to go back and get my uh, id and come back to the polling station so it's those things that we have to be concerned about and as i say there's, um, I don't think the way they're measuring it will actually tell us the real impact of this. Yeah, and the wor- look, the worry is we're, we're actually, policy-wise, we're, we're leaning in the wrong direction. Rather than trying to enfranchise and empower, we're disenfranchising and disempowering, is that a word? Uh, people, so we're actually leaning in the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, uh, obviously I want people to vote. Obviously I think people voting is uh, important. However, one of the things that I'm also concerned about is once people vote and they vote because they've chosen, you know, presumably the person whose manifesto they agree with the most or the person they trust the most, what happens then? Because that's when trust gets broken is when you promise to do one thing and you don't deliver on it. And there's not what I would like to see is uh, new mechanisms in order to ensure that accountability. uh, Yeah, exactly. Once that vote is cast. Yeah. Because if ultimately... If people vote and then politicians do whatever they want, then what does it actually mean? That, that And that's what you hear the most yeah. when people don't vote. What's the point? They're all the same. They tell you one thing, do another. So why the fuck would I go and vote if it doesn't actually make a difference? They're going to do what they want anyway, right? Yeah, and that's kind of what some of my... Um, some of my discomfort, let's say, around this, oh, we just have to educate people about how it works. Like, what if actually they do know how it works and, you know, they're choosing that it's yeah. not worth engaging in because it's actually not delivering for them and they don't see yeah. how, you know, as I said, well, if you vote for them, then you can hold them to account. But actually, what are the mechanisms to, to yeah. hold them to account? Or, or the, yeah, this, this, I love the way we framed it today and you framed it today in that, it's not that they don't care, it's that they're disenfranchised and they don't think this system works for them, so they switch off from it, right? And yeah. it's it's not that people are, aren't educated, it's not that they don't care about the issues, it's that they just don't have trust in the system and the people to fix it. Yeah, exactly, and so until we transform politics through something like House of Citizens that actually puts ordinary people and gives them power to hold mm-hmm. politicians to account, I just don't see how that will change. Yeah, and so lastly, we're, we're right on 50 seconds left, Tell us a little bit about Sortition and how people can get involved. So we're going to launch the campaign this summer. Uh, first off, we're just asking Keir to keep his pledge to abolish the Lords, but then we will be building public support for a House of Citizens. So come to our, go to our website, sortitionfoundation.org, and sign up to be part of that campaign when it launches. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, James Robertson from Sortition Foundation, for joining us. Thank you all for listening. Uh, a huge thank you to our guests today, Count Binface, uh, who was uh, interesting, <laughs> Matteo Bergamini uh, from founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, Alice Mason, media spokesperson at Votes at 16, and a huge thanks to Clive Betts, Labour MP for Sheffield and South East for not joining us today. I have been Ali Milani. You can follow us on Instagram at Politics Uncensored. I am on Twitter at ARMilani underscore. Thank you so much, everybody. Salams. See you next week.